Okay, we're back in the book of Daniel. And maybe we get that PowerPoint up here, that first PowerPoint, the one with uh, chapter 7 and chapter 2 set side by side. And just a little review, if we could. We remember uh, that we were introduced to some um, unruly beasts in chapter 7. And uh, we had a, a lion and then a bear with three ribs in his mouth and then a leopard and on his back were four wings of a bird making him double fast. And then we had this, uh, this indescribable beast, dreadful, terrible, and it had ten horns. In chapter 7 then, uh, let me get my thing here. Let's go forward a little bit here. All right, in chapter 7 then, um, what we came up with in verse number 8 was the first introduction to the Antichrist. And I believe that Daniel's prophecies are centered around the introduction of this Antichrist. You've got to remember that Moses didn't know anything about an Antichrist. He knew about a Messiah. He knew about a Messiah that would come, but he didn't know this particular period of time when this tremendous enemy of Israel, the Antichrist, would stand up against that nation. No wonder Daniel stood absolutely uh, uh, faint after seeing some of these visions. This was an introduction to some very bad times that would face the nation of Israel, both in the present and in the future. So we would have it in the present in that Antiochus Epiphanes in chapter 8 would then come forward and he would give them a foretaste or a shadow of what was to come with the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. It was Antiochus Epiphanes. Now in chapter 8 you have uh, the two sections there as we go and in chapter 8 you have the ram uh, which is the Medo-Persians and then you have this male goat. And what happens, as I mentioned, very important factor to re- keep in mind. You have four visions of Daniel. The first vision is really a review of chapter 2, and that is the vision of Nebuchadnezzar and the world empires that would come on this stage. Uh, and then in chapter 8, we tend to hone in or get a little closer to the details that Daniel wants to give forth in his prophecies. And so we're introduced there to the Antichrist himself. Uh, that would be in chapter 7. In chapter 8, you have Antiochus Epiphanes. And at the end, uh, you're given some of the characteristics of this uh, one who stands against Israel. And you remember last week we, we read from the Apophrical how accurate, absolutely accurate, the Word of God is with the history of that diabolical individual in chapter number 8. You go over to chapter number 8 and verse number 24. And I just want to go through this to kind of get through this last part. Antiochus Epiphanes is going to come back in chapter 11. It it, it will be reintroduced to him. He seems to be a main subject of the prophecies of Daniel, But in chapter 24, it says this, And his power will be mighty. But listen to these words. Now, I know this is a New American Standard. I don't know what yours says in the King James, but it says, But not by his own power. Oftentimes, you get this question from individuals. You're going to say, Well, tell me, when does this Antichrist come? Well, it's interesting to note, that we don't know, and Satan doesn't know either. You see, I believe that, that through the ages, all the way through the ages, because Satan does not know when God is going to give the word now. He always has a man ready. He has a man ready in the, the, the beginning ages, in the 100s, in the 200s, in the 300s, right on through, we have a man ready at all times. In 1936, a man was ready. What was his name? Adolf Hitler. Oh, you see, there's always a man ready. Why? Because Satan stands with the great disadvantage of not knowing when. So he must be ready. 
at all times. Now, this Antiochus Epiphanes, was he ready? Is he a picture of the readiness of this personage, the Antichrist? It says, he, not by his own power. It's not by his own power. Why? Because he was empowered by Satan himself. The prince of the power of the air. And so we have uh, this one always ready as far as the latter days are concerned. Antiochus Epiphanes, it says, um, but he will be broken in verse number 25 at the end. He will be broken without human agency. And that is exactly the way the Antichrist is broken without human agency. This is what history tells us happened to Antiochus Epiphanes. He was writing out of Jerusalem. This is in the history books now. I have two versions, though, and with, with, a, with an insignificant change in, in those two versions. He was writing out of Jerusalem, heading for his capital in Syria, when he caught word that there was a rebellion again in the nation of Israel. He turned either on his horse or in his chariot, he turned and he put his fist towards God and he said these words, there'll be a lot of Jews killed today. And he turned that chariot around or that horse. There's a difference. Not sure. What's the difference? No difference at all. He turned it around so quickly he fell off whatever it was, hit the ground and was disemboweled right there on the ground. History tells us that his soldiers were so disgusted by the fact that inside of his being were worms eating him out. Now, you remember back in the book of Acts, Herod and all his glory, right? All his glory and all his splendor. It says he, he bore himself in gold and his son beat down on the gold. And the people said, oh, he's a God, he's a God. He didn't dispute that, did he? And he fell, and he was full of worms. Watch out when you begin to take the place of God, folks. You may become food for worms. Actually, those aren't the only two. There are a number of individuals, and that seems to be the choice of God Almighty, to judge those who would actually try to step in the place of God Almighty. They would be eaten by worms. And that's exactly what history tells us happened to Antiochus Epiphanes. His soldiers did not even want to touch him. It smelled so bad. And he ended up dying a very short time later. Verse 26 says, And the visions of the evening and the morning which has been told is true. Don't you desire truth in the day and age in which we live? This is true. This is the real facts. They're borne out by past history where it has transpired exactly the way God had ordered it. There would come the Medo-Persians, and then there would come the Grecians, and then there would come the Romans, and the Romans would not cease. There would be a revived Roman Empire, and that's still future. So we have the past which is fulfilled, the past which is fulfilled, and then we have the future. Let me tell you, if God fulfills the past, he's going to fulfill the future. There's going to be a revived Roman Empire, chapter 7. And from that revived Roman Empire is going to come a little horn, uh, the Antichrist. That little horn is there in order to judge the nation of Israel. And so it is true. It is absolutely true. Verse 27, then Daniel was exhausted, sick for days. No wonder. I don't blame him. Does it say that when he was about to be put into a lion's den at about the age of 86? Does the Bible say oh, he just became so full of anxiety and he, and he became sick to his stomach at the very thought that he'd be cast into a lion's den where no one had ever escaped before? Does it say that in the Bible? No, it don't, does it? Oh, you see, the lion's den, that, that, that wasn't something that would, would, would bring fear into his heart. Ah, but the future, as being laid out by God the Father, that's what brought fear into his heart. Chapter number 9, then. Chapter number 9, then, goes into the period of Darius 
the son of Hazuerus, and then we get back to the Medians again. And so Daniel was probably uh, well into his 80s at this particular time. Chapter number 9 starts in this way, and I'm not going to get through all to chapter 12. I know there's just no way. I, I, I thought about it. It ain't going to happen. So, so let's begin to concentrate then a little bit more on chapter number 9 and the end of chapter 11, and that's where we're going to have to leave it today. We're going to have to leave you to fill in the pieces as we go. In the, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a median, of median descent, who was made king over the kingdoms of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Darius, observed in the books the number of years uh, which uh, was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the, des- of the uh, desolation of Jerusalem. In other words, Babylon would be the whip that God used to punish the insolent disobedience of the nation of Israel. That's what it's saying in the last part there. Namely, the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem. In other words, there was going to be a process that was going to be carried out to its absolute completion. And then we were going to move on. And Jeremiah tells in his uh, prophecies that this completion would be done in 70 years. Now, we can't blame uh, Daniel here. You might say, well, man alive, he... He, he was a reader of the Word of God. Surely he was a reader of the Word of God. But the question is, when did he get delivered to him the prophecies of Daniel? Well, we don't exactly know when. Remember that Jehoiakim received that prophecy as written by Barak, as prescribed by Daniel. And Jehoiakim sat there with a penknife and tore it up one piece by one piece by one piece and threw it into the fire, right? But then God said, go back. I know this is tedious. It's difficult. Go back. Do it again. And Jeremiah did it again. Barak must have said, oh, man, i got writer's cramp. I'm dying here. Please, you know, do it again. And they did it again. Somehow the words of Jeremiah's prophecy got back to Daniel, and Daniel knew that it's prescribed by the God of heaven that it would be 70 years, and then there would be a man named Cyrus that would come on the scene. Now, remember back in Isaiah 45, 175 years before Cyrus was ever born, Isaiah predicted that there would be a king, a powerful king. In the Medes and the Persians, he would be a Persian. That's the highest part. That's the the larger of the two. That's the bear that's humped up on the side. He would be a powerful king. And in Isaiah chapter 45, he is named. And the Bible even makes a point of it. Look at here. I'm even going to name him. His name will be Cyrus. That's 175 years before Cyrus was ever born. And so uh, there, there we have these tremendously unbelievable prophecies. Verse number uh, th- uh, 3, it says, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. That's a preparation for prayer. It was a very serious matter when it came to prayer uh, with the, this man named Daniel. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed And said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenants and loving uh, loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Now listen to what it says in verse 5. We have sinned and committed iniquity, iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and Ordinance, we have sinned. That's, that's the, first, the first 16 verses of his prayer deals with the contrite heart of a repentant sinner. You say, well, wait a second. Uh, they give, they give a, a glaring testimony of Daniel why he's, he's esteemed in heaven. No, he says, I and my people both. And so he begins to unveil this prayer of contrition and, and, and repentance before God Almighty. And God was hearing this prayer. Let me tell you, that's the best place to start. What was he praying? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, maybe we'll just go there real quickly because we're not going to get through all this anyway. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 28, and we'll find out 
that, that he was praying the word of God. This is what it says. Go back, go back to 28, and it talks about in verse number 3, chapter 28, verse number 3, blessed, verse 4, blessed, verse 5, blessed, verse 6, blessed, and then go down to verse 16. Cursed. Cursed. Verse 18, cursed, and verse 19, cursed. He was praying the word of God. Here's what it says in verse 36 of chapter 28. The Lord will bring you and your kings, whom you shall set over you, whom he shall set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood. And stone. Verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar and from the ends of the earth as the eagle swoops down. Remember what kind of wings the lion had? Uh oh. There's those eagle wings. Speed. Speed. Unbelievable speed. Swoops down a nation whose language you shall not understand. What was it being prophesied by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy? The exact thing that was, had transpired here when Babylon took over Jerusalem. Laid siege on the city and laid siege on the whole world. And then there's call to Repentance. Repentance. What was Daniel praying? Let me tell you. You want to be a successful as far as your prayer life is concerned? Pray the word and will of God Almighty. You study out chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, and chapter 30. You study out, and that whole scene is laid out way before it ever takes place. And the the solution to their problem was to repent. To acknowledge their sins. No, don't go before God and, and give all kinds of details. Well, those Babylonians, they're just not very fair to us. And this and that. And, no, no, you repent. It's your sins that caused you to land where you've landed. It's your iniquities. It's your transgressions that landed you there. Deal with your own sins. And God hears that prayer. Well, I'll tell you, would it be, be effective prayer? Life, pray the word of God. That's what it's saying. Daniel prayed the word of God. And, and, and look what it says. Look what it says. Go back to chapter number 9 and verse 16. Then, then's when he begins to lay out his, prayer, his petitions before God. Oftentimes what we do is we start, we start going into the details of our petitions. Oh, Lord, you know, this person, they're doing this to me. And, and, and if you just change my residency from this place, bad place, bad place, and, and you do this, all these little, little bitty details that we get into. If you have a child and that child is, is, is laying on the ground and you say, Oh, man, what's going on with this child? It's got no food. It's got no love. It's got no housing. It's got no this. It's got no that. Well, what do you need to pray for? Oh, I need to pray that it's got housing. No, I need to pray that its mother comes along and takes up that child in her arms. That mother is the answer to all those little details, you see. That's the way Daniel was praying. All those little details, he left out. Why? Because all he wanted to know that that we have the very presence of God. If we have the very presence of God, all those details are taken care of. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these details, all these things shall be added unto you. You see, that child doesn't need all those details, doesn't need a bottle of milk, it needs its mother. And all those details are taken care of. That's exactly the way Daniel prays here in chapter number 9. So we have the prophecy of the 70 years. And then we have in verse number 20, and, and you, you, to go into all the details as far as this prayer is concerned it is, is very difficult uh, to do because we want to get into this clock. And i got a clock here that's looking at me and saying, I don't know if you're going to get into that clock. But here we go. 
Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. Now, it, it, he de- it doesn't say, in behalf of me, Daniel, I've been treated wrongly. You know, I was a good guy. I walked upright. What am I doing here? This is, this is an affront against me. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He's defending the glory of God. Oh, you want a successful prayer? Oh, if you're going after the glory of God, oh, it's not going to land on deaf ears then, is it? He's defending the glory of God. And while he was in the very process, while he was in process of praying, he was interrupted. And it says in verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, this is, I believe, the first mention. No, there's first mention is back in chapter 7 or 8. I'm not, yep, 7, uh, 8 is the first mention of Gabriel. That is the first mention of any good angel by name. This is the second mention here. And it says, uh, while I was speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom, uh, whom I had seen in a vision previously, came in to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, I want, I want to point out something that, that sometimes we just fly right over here. Daniel is about 86 years old at this point. He had been away pushed into this foreign land with this foreign language and this foreign people and the foreign customs and all that. He'd been in there for about 68 years. Look what the Bible says. He still remembered the evening sacrifice. Where was the temple? Where was the blood? Where is the sacrifice? There is none. He still clocked his day by the morning and evening sacrifice. After 68 years, what was the objective in in chapter number 1? The very objective was to take these individuals and rub the nation Israel out of their brain and install the nation Babylon, the world empire. Help them to forget. Give them all the best food. Treat them right. Help them to forget. Did he ever forget? No. You see, he was still clocking his day after 68 long years. He was still clocking his day by the morning and evening sacrifice. He remembered as he would take that lamb, probably at the age of 12, 13 years old, he was probably taken out and into captivity at about the age of about 15. From Jerusalem, the Bible says, specifically from Jerusalem. And, and, and he remembers as that innocent lamb was taken to the priest, and the priest would then slit the neck of that innocent lamb. And his blood would pour out, and it would shake and make violent reaction until there was no more violent reaction. He never, never forgot, did he? At the time of the evening sacrifice, and he gave me instructions... And talk with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, now let's go on if we can. At the beginning of your supplication, uh, before the Lord, my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. In other words, in behalf of the glory of God. We're not dealing with the glory of, of Daniel here or even the, even the people specifically. He's dealing with the glory of God. Let me tell you, you want an effective prayer. That's what you do. You deal in the glory of God. At the beginning of the supplication, the command was issued. I have come to tell you, and you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And here's what the accomplishment was. Seven weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the visions and the prophecies, and to anoint the most holy place that was the objective that will be the objective of all the punishment that is inflicted upon the nation of israel 
So you are to know and discern. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to give a divine timeline, a divine timeline that will extend all the way to the end. This is the only place in the Bible where you get this divine timeline. Uh, Most of the time, these things are kept from us. But here he gives a divine timeline in regards to that. So you are to know and discern. I want you to point I want you to realize what it's saying there. It's saying, listen, you need to know. You need to know. You say, well, all this stuff, I tell you, it's just massive confusion. I can't understand it. Well, let me tell you this right now. You have before you a pretty simple Dumb man right here. And I can understand this. Now, I can't put all the pieces of the puzzle together. No, I won't ever tell you that I can do that. But I can understand this divine timeline that's given. And and what the Word of God is saying is, you need to know. Who is he talking to? The Gentiles? The church? Remember, the Gentiles and the church are not here. They're just not. What he's talking to is that nation called Israel. Now, some would like to take Israel and put in this place, in this timeline, they'd like to put the church as a replacement. And they deny the fact that there are 2,400 references to the nation of Israel. In the Word of God, I challenge you, read it for yourself, check it out yourself. There is no way you can come to such a conclusion. This is in regards to the nation of Israel. It does include us. It does have us in view. But primarily, it is the nation of Israel. It says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. And so we have this first portion and that is, uh, and actually, uh, I I don't like this... uh, Because this is wrong. I didn't look at it close enough, did I? That's wrong. And let me tell you why. You're going to have to go to the decree that's that's in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah. And the, the years work out right to 49. What he's saying is there's going to be one week. Seven weeks. Okay? Seven weeks. Now, what? By this seven weeks, seven weeks is that seven days? No, it, 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 it's seven years in the Jewish mindset. That would be uh, seven years uh, when dealing uh, with this particular issue. Um, maybe, hmm, you remember uh, as Jacob had uh, worked seven years for Rachel, beautiful Rachel. And then after seven years were up, Laban had come to Jacob and he said, you know, you know, I forgot to mention something. Pardon me for not mentioning this, but, but we never give away the youngest before the oldest. Well, thank you for not mentioning that. And, and so what I want you to do is I want you to, notice the words, I want you to complete her Week. That is Laban. Uh, that is uh, Leah's. Complete her week. And then when you complete her week, I'm going to give you two for the price of one. Well, that's exactly the way the Jews looked at it. The Romans look at it in tens. That's where we get the metric system, right? You got tens, hundreds, thousands. It's all even in tens. But the, the Jews looked at it in sevens. And so when, when he was told to complete her week, we know what came next. It wasn't seven days. It was seven more years. And so that's one of the evidences. There are many evidences to, to, to make us understand that we're dealing with weeks of years. Uh, in other words, seven times seven equals 49. It was 49 years from the time Nehemiah in Nehemiah was given the orders to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, I, I'm not, I'm not going to have time to go into all this, but that's why this is not correct, because they weren't going back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They were doing other things when they went back, the temple, 
uh, supplies for the temple were brought in. I think there were either three or four times in which these Medo-Persian kings had actually sent back groups to go back and re- rebuild Jerusalem. It was in Nehemiah's day that this one, that's when the time clock started because they were going back to rebuild Jerusalem, uh, not all the various other things. And, and, and will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza, moat, even in the time of distress. And so we have a, a total there of 62 more weeks, and uh, you add 62, and you add 7, and you come up with, what do you come up with as far as weeks? You come up with a total of uh, 62, wait a second. Now, seven weeks, you got 49 years, it's 49 years, and then you have 434 years in the second portion, which goes from the, the end of the rebuilding of the temple all the way to the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have a total of 483 years. Okay? So 483 years after this seven-week period and the 62-week period all the way up to the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people with a lot more brains than me went through this. Sir uh, Robert Anderson, who went through this, I, I, I recommend his book, the, Print, the Coming Prince. Excellent book, excellent read. You're going to have to put on your thinking cap a little bit. The man is extremely intellectual. And he comes up with uh, it coming right to, at the 62-week period, right to the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the words in the end of chapter uh, 9 and verse 25. Until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks. Now, the reason why it fits better with the triumphal entry, because it's not saying to his humiliation, it's saying to his exaltation. And they cried out, Hosanna. They were willing. They were ready, ready, only just a week before the crucifixion. They were ready to take him and crown him as the king of the Jews. And then that king of the Jews would put off the tyranny of the Roman government. They were ready. But he continued on in the path that his father had assigned. Because the throat of that lamb was slit. And so the life of the Lord Jesus Christ would have to be taken as well. And so it brings us, after the 62 weeks, right up to the triumphal entry. Now, I want you to notice these next few verses. I'm only going to get through this. I understand. And I'm sorry. It's about all we can get to. It says, um, uh, after 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat uh, in the time of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, now take note of this, the Messiah will be cut off. So what we have is uh, about a week later, the Messiah will be cut off. But I want you to understand something. There are events that occur after the 62 weeks, okay? Because this is a big problem with uh, uh, many people that study the Scripture. They come into a real problem here. So it says, um, uh, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, and, and uh, having nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will be destroyed, the city and the sanctuary. Now, when did that happen? Well, you're going to have to come over even a little further. This thing doesn't show it, but you're going to have to come over to about 70 A.D. under Titus, the Roman, and it says in history that he completely annihilated the temple. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ prophesied that, didn't he? And all the disciples came and said, oh boy, hey, look at this. Oh, you're surely be impressed with this. Look at this temple. Isn't it beautiful? And he said not one stone would be left upon another. And so you have that as what precedes or comes after the 62 weeks, okay? And then there'll be uh, uh, distresses, wars, 
and, and things of that nature. There's going to be events that occur after the 62 weeks. So we know that there is a period of time in there that is kept as a mystery. It is only revealed in the New Testament. It is called the church age. Now, you might say, well, it's alluded to. It's alluded. Well, maybe it's alluded to. But directly revealed, it's not revealed until the New Testament, mainly Paul's writings. So we have this mystery as having been kept. <clears throat> and then it says this, um, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be wars, desolation are determined. And he will make a firm covenant. Now, verse 27 changes, doesn't it? See, because if you're doing your math, you've still got seven years hanging out there. There's still seven years that are unaccounted for. Now, chapter uh, verse 27 is going to begin to unfold to us what is going to happen in that short seven-year period. It says, uh, Then he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wing of abomination, this is referred to by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, uh, and the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate. So the abomination of desolation, even until the complete destruction, one that is decreed. Now, look, look at that word. That, that word is strong in the Hebrew. It means there is absolutely no doubt this will take place. It's mandated and decreed from heaven, from God the Father. And it's still coming. It's still in our future. Complete destruction. Making desolate. Now, I want to jump over to... Chapter number 11. He said, whoa, whoa, what happened to 10 and all? Oh, it's, good stuff. it's great stuff. Please. I, I wish I had more time, but it, it, it's excellent stuff. Let me, do, let me just mention this in verse 12 of chapter 10. Uh, look, look at these two words. These are two words that give us a good key to successful prayer life. Listen to this. Chapter 10 and verse number 12. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and humbled yourself. Ah, you see, heaven took note of that prayer in chapter 9, didn't it? It took note to the point where he interrupted. Heaven interrupted that very prayer because it was so glorious to the name of God the Father. And so there's your keys to a good prayer life. You humble yourself and you're heard. There's the two words, the two H's, humbled and heard. I don't know how it comes out in the King James, not sure. But humbled and heard is the two words that I'm seeing here in the New American Standard. Verse 13 does say that the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Whoa, what is this all about? Well, very simply stated, it seems like in the scriptures that all of these world empires also had a representative from hell itself, not from hell itself, from Satan himself. He would send a representative, a very powerful representative, to try and alter and move things into Satan's uh, uh, will. And so we have this prince of Persia. Uh, he actually withstood this angel. Now, I want to I make something note here to you. Just really quickly, because some people get confused on this. The one spoken of up to verse 10 is the Lord Jesus Christ. But I believe, now I could be wrong on this. You can, uh, you can take difference with me. I don't, that doesn't bother me none. I believe at chapter t uh, verse number 10, we change personages. And now this is just an angel. It's a messenger of God, it's an angel. And so what he says is, listen, I tried to get to you, Daniel. Listen, I tried to get to you. I really did. But I was held for 21 days uh, by this personage that Satan sent down in regards to the Persians. Now look at the, uh, the last verse. It says this. 
But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. That's the same one he just talked about. So I am going forth and behold the prince of Greece. So this is where we get the the idea that, that Satan has his influence, his man. He's got his man into these world empires, influencing these world empires, and he is not influencing them for good. So we have one for the Persians. We have one for the Greece. Uh, I, I would say that, that Satan has his man every time. He's got one for the Romans. He has one right on down the line. He's got his man in place all the time. So that's one interesting point that tends to come up. Chapter 11 then. Chapter 10 is, is actually a preface for the vision in chapter 11, verse 2, starting in 11, verse 2. It is a preface. You can go through it. We do not have time to go through it now. And then you've got chapter 11 itself. And you're going to get into this battle between the north, uh, the Seleucus Empire of the Grecians, and the south, which is the Ptolemies in Egypt. And you've got this going back and forth. Check it out with history. I, I, listen, I challenge you. Set down your Bible. Set down the history book and compare it. And that is exactly why the naysayers are baffled. They cannot answer for that kind of accuracy the only thing they can say is Daniel couldn't have written it that's the only conclusion they can come up with because you're you're not going to question the accuracy of it it talks about the battles that went on there were actually four battles that went on between the Seleucus and the Ptolemy the the north and the south and then you had a marriage and another marriage and, and all of them are exactly in line with history and so the historians say, well, that's obvious. <laughs> it's obvious that uh, Daniel must not have written this. No way. This is written during the Maccabean period. After the Grecians, it had to be. Let's go on because something happens in the end of chapter number 11. I'm going to take a little bit of extra time here, but I just want to go through it really quickly because we're going to go right back. Uh, chapter 11 Starting at verse 29 is the reinsurgence of this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is a clear type of the Antichrist. Now, I want you to notice a transition that takes place. This is very, very important. It is not this person that comes up with this, but all the Bible scholars agree that there's a a transition that takes place at the end of verse 35 of chapter 11. It says this, And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure. Now listen to these words. Until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Chapter 12 and verse 4 says, Until the end time. Something occurs at this point at verse 36. And what occurs is that we are no longer speaking about Antiochus Epiphanes. We are speaking directly about the Antichrist, the future whipping boy of the nation of Israel. Okay? So this is what it says, uh, verse 36. Then the, look at that word, then the king. Now I am in the New American Standard. Maybe I should be in the King James. It says, then the king will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Now, wait a second. Oh, all all of a sudden, the the scholars say, whoa, 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 who is this guy? Because Antiochus Epiphanes, I mean, he was raw bad. But who is this guy? Now, listen to what it says. Um, Above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. Well, that, that might fit. And then it says, and, and, uh, and, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. In other words, until the punishment on the nation of Israel is absolutely de- uh, completed, for that which is decreed, there's that word again, decreed will be done. There, there, isn't, there isn't doubts about this. Isn't, oh, well, you know, that sounds like a pretty good uh, shot at knowing what the future is. That's a possibility. No, it's decreed. It's going to be the future of the nation of Israel. It says in verse 37, And he will show no regard for the God of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. Then verse 38 says, 
but instead of but instead he will honor the God of fortresses. Now that's an interesting term. The fortresses is talking about a good translation would be power. The God of war. That's that's what will drive him. Now we know that there's going to be a decree written. And if you go back to the end of chapter number 8, you're going to find out that this guy comes with shrewdness. And in the King James, it uses the word peace. In other words, this Antichrist is going to come on the scene and he's going to be one whale of a diplomat. And he's going to convince the nation of Israel to sign in on this covenant. And then at the three and a half year point, he's going to show his true stripes and break that covenant with that nation. Mainly that nation. He will break that covenant. But instead, he will honor the fortress of gods. This is where he's really revealed. He's a warmonger is what he is, whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold and silver, costly stones and treasure, and he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of foreign gods. He will give give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out the land for for a price. In other words, he's going to give those who follow after him, who absolutely give him their allegiance, they are going to receive tremendous bounty from this and riches and wealth and silver and gold and land and the whole works. And you say, well, he doesn't have a right to do that. Yes, he does. (laughs) Oh, yes, he does. What the Lord Jesus Christ refused at the temptation, oh, I have all the kingdoms of the world. Look, Lord, they're at your disposal. Take them. Take them. The Lord said no. What he refused, the Antichrist accepts. I want you to notice that. That's exactly what transpires here. And then we have the Great Tribulation in chapter number 12. And we go through the Great Tribulation, and then in verse number 5, we have these two entities that stand on the seashore, on a shore. And in the middle, not in the water, but way above the water, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he's dressed in beautiful white linen. And those who are on the seashore, they're going to cry out to him and say, How long, Lord? That doesn't the first time they said that. How, how is this all going to pan out? Oh, I'll tell you, this is what you've got to get out of this. That one who's above is absolutely sovereign God Almighty. He is in control. He has decreed this to be so. This is the future of the nation of Israel and all the Gentiles that rebel against the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who say no to Christ. I will not have this man to rule and reign over me. I heard the gospel. I hear it. You say he died for me. I don't want nothing to do with it. This is your future, friend. Take a look at it. Know it well. Know it well. This is your future. And then it says this in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for an only son. The nation of Israel at the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the way it's going to transpire. There's going to be the the Antichrist. There's going to be the false prophet. And they're going to be uh, with an entourage of kings and individuals and a tremendous, unbelievable, tremendous army. And they are going to come and, and, and they're going to present themselves and they're going to puff out their chest and they're going to say, oh, we can take you. We can take you. And the Lord is going to turn to the Antichrist and the false prophet and say, come here. Now look what happens. 
in chapter 11 and verse 45. Yet he will come to his end. Who is he speaking of? The Antichrist? Yes, the Antichrist. He will come to his end and no one will help him. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about Revelation chapter 19. When he says, when that one riding upon that white horse, and upon that horse is written, King of kings and Lord of lords, when he says, you, Antichrist, you, false prophet, come here, the kings will freeze up. There ain't going to be one king stepping forward even one step. Because then, That one that rules over the water stands above the waters. That sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, he's going to present himself to the world. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our God and our heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that we have a way out of all this. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. And that if we take for ourselves the blood of Jesus and apply it to our filthy, iniquitous, full of transgression heart, that we can be saved, know our sins are forgiven, and be on our way to heaven. And Father, then we're going to bypass all this mess. But all that we have been challenged time and time again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It says, know these things. Know these things. Oh, Father, we look forward to that, that trump sounding and the dead in Christ rising and we who remain will be caught up forever to be with Him. And then when He comes back in His glory and He stands before those kings of the earth in, in, in all their pride, oh, our Father... We're going to be the ones rayed behind him in beautiful white garments. We're there with him. We get to join in his victory. The greatest victory that this earth will ever see is the second coming of Christ when he takes control of this earth and puts down all the enemies. We give you thanks, our Father. We just pray that everyone here has put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and that this not be their plight. This not be their future. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>